Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, there was an article in The Atlantic about parents and their kids and athletics. As we know, our society loves travel sports. We love organized sports. And this article was a little bit interesting as it was talking about very elite families, mostly on the East Coast, and their desire to get their kids a scholarship, but not necessarily in the kind of sports that we think of, not football, not basketball. Instead, there was this whole arms race to get scholarships in squash, water polo, fencing, rowing. And here's the best paragraph I read. On paper, Sloan, a buoyant, chatty, stay-at-home mom from Fairfield County, Connecticut, seems almost unbelievably well-prepared to shepherd her three daughters through the roiling world of competitive youth sports. She played tennis and ran track in high school and has an advanced degree in behavioral medicine. She wrote her master's thesis on the connection between increased aerobic activity and attention span. She's also versed in statistics, which comes in handy when she's analyzing her eldest daughter's junior squash rating and whiteboarding the consequences if she doesn't step up her game. She needs at least a 5.0 rating or she's going to Ohio State, Sloan told me. She laughed. I don't mean to throw Ohio State under the bus. It's an amazing school with amazing school spirit. But a little over a year ago, during the 4th of July weekend, Sloan began to think that maybe it was time to call it quits. She was crouched in the vestibule of the Bay Club in Redwood City, strategizing on the phone with her husband about a malicious refereeing dispute that had victimized her daughter at the California Summer Gold Tournament. He had his own problem in Columbus, Ohio, at the Junior Fencing Nationals with the couple's two younger girls and son. He reported that their middle daughter, a 12-year-old saber fencer, had been stabbed in the jugular during her first bout. The wound was right next to the corroded artery, and he was withdrawing her from the tournament and flying home. She'd been hurt before while fencing on one occasion, gashed so deeply in the thigh that blood seeped through her pants. But this was the first time a blade had jabbed her in the throat. It was a 4th of July massacre. I thought, what are we doing, said Sloan, who asked to be identified by her middle name to protect her daughter's privacy and college recruitment chances. It's the 4th of July. You're in Ohio. I'm in California. What are we doing to our family? We're torturing our kids ridiculously. They're not succeeding. We're using all our resources and emotional bandwidth for a fool's folly. And Don, the article is just fascinating about this world of parents doing anything to get their kids a college scholarship. And it has a lot of echoes of a world that you and I do notice, which is the travel, youth, sports culture. What did you think of the article? What did it make you think of? The article was amazing, and there's so many parts that I want to talk about that I thought were really, really interesting. In part, I thought, wow, I think where we live, Oakland County, Michigan, is pretty intense in travel sports. And then I realized, not so much. These are people that have found the niche sport and where they have the greatest chance of putting their kid to an advantage to get into an Ivy League school, not even necessarily for a scholarship, but to get into the top tier school based upon their ability. In addition, these kids are constantly rocking the academics and have a tutor with them at all times while they're traveling the country to do sports. I was just floored. So much of it was about vanity. These were parents that are already highly successful in their jobs. Money doesn't really seem to be something that's scarce in their lives. Instead, what is scarce is getting a coveted position at an Ivy League school. And for a while, it seemed like kind of a money ball thing where people said, well, what are the sports that nobody's playing? And so you had these squash, water polo, fencing, rowing. And now it's like all these parents are like, that's what we're going to have our kids do. 
all of them are like, we can afford to go to these colleges. It's not really the free ride that we're looking for. Instead, what we're looking for is validation. What we're looking for is that extra feather in our cap that our neighbors don't have where our kids are in an Ivy League school and they're also successful athletes. This was something I just had no idea was going on out there. Absolutely. It ignores the whole idea that getting into a top school does not guarantee you a more successful life or a happier life or even a higher income. Malcolm Gladwell had a great chapter in David and Goliath where he talked about the small school is better than the big school for 99% of kids. And you're better off to be the best engineering student at Illinois State than you are bottom third at Harvard. It just is so focused on this goal that they can't take their eyes off and every little angle, everything they can do to achieve greatness in this niche sport which leads them into the hallowed halls of these great universities which actually may not be the best for them as we've seen with aunt becky there from full house and her kids trying to get into usc and i think they were trying to pass them off as rowers at something or something like that you have just this intense desire to get into these few elite colleges these are colleges that turn away perfect sat scores they said a lot of these schools are bombarded now with people that can play the sports, hoping that they can get in that way. They talked about a high percentage of kids that go to Ivy League schools that end up playing a sport there. It was just an interesting way to kind of think about how the elites are kind of competing on their own playing field against other elites. I mean, again, squash, water polo, fencing, rowing, maybe you might pay attention to some of these sports during an Olympic cycle. None of these sports are going to lead to great wealth or, or fame or anything like that, but that doesn't seem to be the point. The point seems to be, how do you get your foot into the door of a college that is so exclusive that you're going to now take your entire kids like childhood and begin the process to get them into the very top few? And I thought that was just really interesting. They said there's actually very few spots for any of these sports. The number of scholarships available are in the low thousands. And yet there's like 45,000 kids competing in these sports across America. The, the chances are so low, and yet people are so rabid and intense about it. And two-thirds of those spots go to people from other countries. And so they're really fighting over the third. A couple of parts of the article that really blew me away was, one, this uh, kid commits or starts talking to Yale or one of these Ivy schools. And then all of a sudden, that coach starts getting reports that this kid is a drug user, that this kid cheats in class. And then the coach calls the high school, and the high school says, oh, yeah, that's normal. So what happens is if a kid is interested, then the other the kid's competitors' parents will call with false reports of how bad that kid is outside of school to try and deter them. And the coaches said, no, no, keep it all secret. Don't tell anybody where you're going, where you're interested, because then all these parents will call us and tell us all these crazy stories. And that they try to destroy their competitors, who are also wealthy people from Connecticut for the most part. That was crazy. It is. It's this small, weird traveling circuit of people that all kind of know each other and are probably like frenemies with each other they probably go out for dinner but then meanwhile just talk horrific things behind each other's back i always love it when rich people are fighting just because it's <laughs> imagine you know i'm just not creative enough obviously i don't have a lot of money so therefore it's just a world where just big power brokers right people that get their way and so many things in life or can buy away their problems and yet their problem is still a bar ultimately is their kid good enough and 
there just seems to be so much riding on it. And again, all of this seems to be about getting their kid into the Ivies more than anything. There's this great quote from a mom where she says, what parent wants to have a child who's going to be playing for a bottom tier school with bottom tier academics in the armpit of the United States? I want to be polite, but there's no way in hell. And all I could think is like, when they said armpit, are they saying Michigan, Don? Are they saying the Midwest? Is that where we live? I believe she was referring to Bloomberg College, which is in Pennsylvania. And my cousin actually went there. But yeah, it's crazy. And there's another part in the article where the mom is talking about a lacrosse player who's very good. And by the way, let's take this sidebar for a moment. We're talking hiring coaches at $400 an hour, talking at least $10,000 a year going into this. There was a story in there about this guy who was a live-in squash coach, lived in the guest house to coach the kids in squash in their private squash court in their home, and then they're flying to California on a private plane. So this coach, who was formerly an elite squash player from Turkey or something, and then he says, oh, yeah, private flight, I'm going to have a drink, relax. No, 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 he gets on the flight, and the tutors, which are ever-present, it seems, are start breaking out opponent reports the parents had hired coaches in cities all over the nation to profile the competitors they'd face in california and then this coach had to spend the whole six-hour flight going through all the possible competitors well joe's from chicago and he's got a strong (laughs) left but a weak right so you want to play it to his right it's crazy i love the fact that you talked about the cost i mean the 400 dollars for a 45 minute a week lesson and they're doing multiple lessons the thousands in travel and yet a lot of this is stuff that we see in our own local county only we see it with soccer we see it with hockey we saw we see it with basketball we see it increasingly with football and this is really no different than the kind of the world that we live in it's just that we're not doing it with these very niche sports Yeah, that is true. I try to avoid this world as much as possible. But yes, I am aware of 12, 13-year-olds who are doing private coaching sessions, private training sessions to get better at this or that. It is a hearkening to what they have. It's just exponentially bigger in this article with the amount of money and the absurdity of just this focus on squash, which is, by the way, quite impressive, I guess, in Montenegro, where a lot of the foreign players come from. I had no idea that there were this many people fencing. I always thought that when you fenced, you got all that helmet and gear, so therefore you couldn't get stabbed or cut, but apparently there's injuries there. I can't imagine if my eight-year-old was fencing and got hit in the artery. Like I, That just seems like not a great idea. I think you're missing the boat here. Your daughter should be fencing already. You've, you've, you're behind. Where are the squash rackets in your home? But that's the thing, is you read this and you realize, actually, no, like, That inefficiency was already uncovered maybe 15 or 20 years ago, right? I remember my buddy had a sister who was pretty athletically inclined and like the family for a little bit had entertained the idea that she should go into rowing because maybe she could go to a Big Ten school and get a rowing scholarship. There was a time when I think people realized maybe that's your route. Go to do a sport that not a lot of people do. But now it seems like everybody's doing it and there's even fewer spots available for all the participants. And it's even that much more cutthroat. I don't think I have the money. I don't even know if I can afford a fencing saber anyways. Oh, yeah. It's just another way to game the system. You can't buy your way into college like Aunt Becky, but you can try and find your niche sport to buy your way in and put your kid into it. It doesn't seem like the kids are really enjoying this very much. And according to college coaches, their substance abuse, depression and burnout issues are just a real problem once they get to school. They said, too, that COVID has really decimated this whole 
like subculture, along with other sports in general, as we've been seeing, lots of colleges are now starting to drop programs as they can't play. Without football, the funding just isn't there to afford all these other scholarships and programs. They were talking about how like Stanford has reduced a lot of their sport offerings. And the fear among a lot of these parents was that there's going to be a ripple effect among a lot of these upper tier schools that start saying, why are we offering rowing or, or fencing or water polo? Maybe we should close those programs down which then again takes away the opportunity for their kids to get into these colleges and stuff like that, which is really what they want. Well, and they've invested many years and lots of money hoping that squash is the answer. And if Stanford cancels squash, as they believe they did, that could ripple into the Ivy League. And then you've put all this time and energy into nothing because, oh, wait, wait, it doesn't matter that your kid's good at squash. The only thing that matters is getting into the college. Can I tell you my favorite story from this? Oh, please. There's a parent there, a mom that's interviewed, and her son is a very good lacrosse player. And he becomes quite good. And he's from this rich Connecticut family. But now he's so good that he only wants to go to schools where there's a good lacrosse team, which is leading him away from the Ivy League schools, which she actually wanted him to get into. With his academics alone, he could get into Columbia, but he doesn't want to go to Columbia because there's no lacrosse program there. So now he's looking at these other schools like Syracuse. Blah! The mom said, I'm thinking of not letting his younger brother play lacrosse because it's just ruined everything for us. It's ruined everything for us, right? I wrote that down as I was reading this of what is the end game here? I get the goal is to get to an Ivy League, but never once in this article does a parent say, look, our goal is to get into this Ivy League because our kid is then going to become a computer programmer and they're going to go do a startup in the Silicon Valley and we're going to leverage that to become a billionaire, right? There's never that discussion of once we get to the Ivy League, this is our goal. It all just seems to be to get to the Ivy League. There's never a discussion of like, well, our kid has a, a real interest in theater or our kid has a real interest in medicine and how the body works. And therefore, we want to give them the best platform to jump off to a future career. Never brought up. It's all just about hyper-focusing and specializing in some really weird niche skill. And that's it. Just get in the door, I guess, and figure it out from there. It seems that way. And that would make sense. Why are the kids feeling lost when they get there? Because the be all and end all of their existence has been to get into this Ivy League through the doors of the squash team. And if once they get there, they, they feel lost. There's a coach from, I believe, the University of Virginia. I think lacrosse was the particular sport they were talking about here, where this coach knows all the high-level recruits, and a lot of them come from these very rich areas on the East Coast. He just sort of talks about how he's actually started to develop a bias against recruiting or taking these kids. And he says, basically, I look at a kid, and then I say, wait, he's already had a lot of people working on these skills. He's maybe a little tapped out. Maybe I'll take a player from Northern California or Texas, someone who hasn't been exposed to such elite coaching. And the idea just sort of goes on of a lot of these kids that he's getting are burned out. They're not necessarily as interested or they've been so overcoached. They actually aren't that good by the time they get up to these major competitive playing fields. Well, I think also his implication is that the ceiling for this kid is fairly low because they've already been tutored and shown exactly what to do at all situations that they can't grow that much. And he wants somebody that's got maybe a lower floor, but a higher ceiling that has more physical ability that I can teach them these things. And then they'll be truly elite. And I think that's the real fear of all these parents is they realize that their gene pool 
is not the elite gene pool. It's not the point, oh, 1% of people. And that how can we maximize what abilities we have using our money to get the best out of these genes that these kids have and give them the best advantage. And the real fear is, oh my gosh, there's a kid who may or may not be living in poverty in some other place that just has far superior speed, strength, size, and they're going to go with them instead of my highly coached, highly prepared kid that has limited of those previous aspects. I have terrible genes when it comes to being an exceptional athlete. The best I ever got was last man on a varsity basketball team. And I went to a division three college and at division three college, there were athletes that were there playing their sports because they liked their sports. They liked, they liked the competitive level. It was awesome. But the thing I noticed was those kids seem to be working as hard or as putting in as much time as a lot of D one athletes. They had to stay during the breaks and they had like multiple hour practices and film sessions, but they were playing just because they wanted to keep playing, which is great. My question for you is you had a scholarship at D1 University of Michigan running cross country. And my question was, how many kids were there running on scholarship? Or maybe you also interacted with other kids that had scholarships in other sports. How many kids did you interact with that were there, but like they didn't really want to be there? They were burned out from the sport because most of the kids I saw at D3 wanted to play because they just liked playing. But with all the pressure of scholarships, did you notice like a lot of kids were there, but didn't really want to actually keep doing the sport? I did not see a lot of that. I saw people that were, for the most part, very focused and determined. I've read recently that NFL players, a lot of those guys don't even really want to play NFL football. Their real passion was basketball or baseball, but that that's how they can make their money. To go to your earlier point, yeah, the D3 athletes and D1 athletes are doing the exact same thing. The D1 athletes just have better facilities and more talent, which is what landed them in D1. But D3 athletes are doing all the same hard work which they, for which they deserve tremendous credit they're doing so while traveling in a van or while using a not very nice weight room or not having many crowds or whatever. And so they are dedicated. And the D1 athletes, for the most part, if they're not dedicated and locked in, then they leave after a year or two. They quit the team and then they kind of roll off and do their thing in college. But for the most part, the people there with scholarship money are the ones that are pretty locked in. Also, for the record, people think scholarships are just handed out like candy. Yes, the football team has 68 scholarships or whatever it is, but track and field, there's 12. I think in baseball, there's something like 10 and they divide those up. So most people come on partial scholarships as I did, which I eventually worked up to a full scholarship when I got faster. And thanks to my coaches for believing in me. But these are small groups of very elite people. And they've been chosen because of their pursuit of excellence. My good friend is Kevin Sullivan, who I ran track with in college, and he's the Michigan coach now. He's following hundreds of kids on Twitter and looking at them all the time to see which one of these high school kids are saying things that are appropriate or inappropriate or really seem driven because it's a high stakes offering a scholarship to somebody. Because if they don't pan out and that's one of your 10 or 12 scholarships, that's a huge strike against you as a program. I just kind of wondered, because the thing that this article made me think about is the absolute focus and concentration that these parents are are requiring of their kids in terms of, it seems like every day there's another private lesson, there's another game to go to, which again is something that you and I can relate to, to all the travel sports that we see around our local area. And I just have always wondered about kids that kind of start young, 
play all these games, go to all these practices, have all this coaching. And some of them are lucky enough to get a scholarship or to go compete at division one. And I just wondered like, are any of them just like, eh, like I'm just kind of burned out now. Or did you notice if anybody, maybe they still love focusing on their sport, but did you notice if any of them were struggling with identity issues in terms of all they could see themselves is an athlete. They couldn't see themselves as I could be a journalist or I could be a photographer or a computer programmer. Like, obviously, these are sports in a lot of ways that don't lead to a career. You hope that at some point in your college experience, you're starting to also develop those other interests and avenues of what are you going to do now as a professional human once college is over? Did you notice anything like that? Or, or did you notice, no, like people that did sports actually had better focus and, and knew who they were in a way that a lot of kids that don't play sports knew? There's interesting stories here. The one you talk about mental burnout, I'd see more that physical burnout in that kids that are really, really good in high school are not necessarily the kids that get that much better in college. I improved tremendously in college because I grew three inches and I got much more mature and stronger. But other people may have plateaued when they're in 11th grade and they just didn't get that much better. For them, it's kind of tough as people pass them by. And I think that's a part that leads them to being lacking interest or feeling like they're getting passed over. And sometimes they are and they end up not playing much or not competing much. And they may abandon the team because they don't feel wanted or needed. In some ways, they are not. There are certainly other people that came and focused very intensely on their academics because that's where they really thought they're going. 99.9% .9 of college athletes are not going pro. And in this case, I could talk about my wife who she came as a partial scholarship runner and was an all-American runner, but she was really focused on school. Running was something she did from three till six every day and competing on the weekends. And her coach actually told her not to focus on school so much because she wasn't super driven for the sport. She did her best, did exceptionally well, but she was always focused on school because that's where she was going. Of course, she's wiser than I, who I was single-mindedly focused on running fast. And I think most people were focused on that, but they do have the back of their head. Where are we going with this? You and I can relate to this article almost more what we see in our local area, which is an intense focus on travel sports like hockey and basketball and soccer. And these ones kind of fit in what the Freakonomics guys call the pyramid careers, where a lot of people play these sports at the very top, at the very point of the pyramid are the professionals who do make millions of dollars. And in some ways, a lot of people kind of throw their hat in the ring, right, to try to make it to the top. And you and I are always constantly sort of joking about or thinking about this world that now seems to have 24-7 websites. We are, people are obsessed with like, who are the five-star recruits? People want to know your rankings. I think about like LeBron James, who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was 17 years old. And people seem obsessed with trying to find the next great youth talent that might rise to the top, even though it's still so difficult. How did we get here to the point where in our culture, we really think a lot and spend a lot of time and money on trying to make it to the top of the pyramid, whether the top is a scholarship in an Ivy League or trying to get to the top of a professional league? Why do we have such an obsession with it? I think the internet's led us to having a much greater view to see all these people nationwide. When I was competing in high school, and I'm sure you as well, you knew the other people in the immediate area, the cities. There's two kids I competed against in college. That I never. There's a kid I never raced that lived 20 miles from me, but he was in class B, so I never saw him. 
I was aware that he was out there, but I don't know anything about him. Whereas now we have much greater ability to see everybody at every area all through the nation. And it's led to probably better performances because you can watch videos of them. You could see what they're doing, what workouts they're doing and figure out how to get better. But it's just a broader focus. Right. I mean, when you and I were kids, and I'll speak even more about myself, is I played lots of different sports, football, baseball, basketball, whatever people were doing in our neighborhood. Kids just went out when we competed. And the thing I was thinking a lot about is you kind of played whatever sport was in season and then the season ended and then you kind of didn't play that sport until the next season showed up because you were playing something else. Only when I got to like high school varsity sports did I guess we started having like basketball team camps or something like that. But nowadays I look around at our local high schools and they're constantly always training for the next season. I see sports constantly putting pressure on kids to come out to the next workout instead of playing a different sport. I see adults and coaches around all the time. I don't remember adults ever being around our sort of informal pickup games. You just played. And if anything, I remember learning a lot about kind of having to protect yourself, kind of having to figure out what to do when kids are laughing at you if you're not very good at a sport because adults weren't around. But I, I feel like there were a lot of informal lessons with all of this. And I feel like we're sports were such a positive in my life. But never once were people talking about where are we ranked on this or I'm going to go get better or I'm sorry, guys, I have to leave our basketball game today so that I can go do a speed workout with my private coach that my parents are paying for. All of that stuff seems to have shifted. Would you agree? Absolutely. Do you know what the number one predictor is of who makes it to the top of the German soccer league? What? Hours of unsupervised play. Yeah. How many hours they're playing soccer without adults to tell them how to, to pass, when to pass, where to go. It's just playing and being out there and getting hours and figuring out the mastery of it. One could say Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours holds and you could just play a lot. I mean, if you watch this, you remember the Sports Century videos of years ago that ESPN did, and they talked about Bobby Orr and Wayne Gretzky playing in the backyard on a pond just all day long. But there weren't parents there telling them how to play. It was just them being creative and learning. And I think the parents, and being a parent, we are our own worst enemy. It's that the parents put the pressure on the kids. They put the pressure on the coaches because they want the coaches to show results. Then the coaches feel like, well, I have to get the results. So I will have this practice or that practice, or I'm going to form this off season travel team or conditioning and, Oh, I'll get paid for that. So there's an incentive for that too. And it's just become a business model where there's a constant pursuit of the best. How many times have you heard about a 10, 12, 14 year old kid with a sore elbow or a real bad injury or having an MRI at 13 years old, the single-minded pursuit of one or two sports is not good for your body. And it's not going to lead you to long run success. No, I'm amazed at how many athletes that I've coached. I, I've coached uh, a lot of girls basketball at from the middle to the high school levels over the last decade or so. And we've had players that have gone down with like stress fractures, the kinds of injuries that are just overuse injuries. And these are kids whose parents were like, yeah, you're going to keep doing travel volleyball and you're going to do basketball and we're never going to take time off. Or these are kids that are being asked to go to two practices a night where they're you know, working out hard for almost four hours. I'm just amazed that nobody can just kind of say no or enough, or we're going to just do one thing right now. But I also feel like the adults in a lot of these kids' lives have put kids in a position where they are going to have to tell an adult no 
And then that adult is going to sort of make the kid feel bad about saying no, even though these are the hardest working kids that just want to please everybody. And they just want to have fun doing everything. But yet we've put so much constraints on it. And that's the thing that I just think is so different is adults seem to be everywhere around youth sports. I remember when I was a kid, three, three basketball was probably the most organized thing that we did outside of like a sports season. And yet we had this like unspoken agreement with all of our parents, stand over in the corner and don't talk to us. And even if we kids are gonna blow the game because we're mentally collapsing, we're running bad plays, we're running bad strategy, or we're not even trying hard, we're gonna lose on our own and you're allowed to sit there and watch. But if you talk to us, we're all gonna yell at you. It's kind of what it was. It was like, all right, like this is your thing, you know? And we had four people on a three on three basketball team. We decided who subbed. We decided what we were gonna do. And that was it. I think back to like, I've run three on three tournaments before as fundraisers. And every one of these has a parent coach down there telling the kids when they're gonna go out, what they're gonna do, yelling at the kids if they're not doing the right thing. And I just thought, let the kids solve this. Let the kids either succeed or fail and let them just kind of figure it out. Why are we trying to overcoach this and overthink this? Absolutely. If the kids are out there just playing. Now, that's the thing is the kids aren't playing. I have a friend that's a few years older than me and his kids all played college soccer. And I, he kept talking about this and that soccer and everything. And I said, well, why don't kids just go out and play? He's like, Don, there's no kids to play. They're all out doing sports. And when I look around my neighborhood, there's a kid a couple doors over who's an elite lacrosse goalie and uh, elite hockey player. And we never see him out playing because he's off doing these things. And then there's the incentive of the temptation of being offered a spot on this team or a spot on that team. Or we get messages from parents who are saying like, my kid's doing this. Your kid could come out too. He's really good. He should do this. And it quickly opens the door to more and more and more. It is not for the best for anybody. It's much harder to be disciplined and realize that, okay, we need to just take some time off. And I have talked to my other brother, my friends who has three kids involved in many competitive sports and traveling for hours and hours while he and I, he and his wife both work very, very prestigious jobs. And he said that we're going constantly. We get home at nine at night and we're just throwing down some food and getting to bed because we have so much sports. And when coronavirus hit, we had to really reassess and it was great. Yeah. I do wonder sometimes if we've sent a weird message to kids, which kind of says, if there isn't an adult in the room, if there isn't a coach, if there isn't a referee, then there's no value to just play. The idea that, again, sports can just be fun. It's a great way to get exercise. It's a great way to do something. Just the idea that it's okay just to go out with the basketball and shoot by yourself, right? It's okay just to go for a run uh, or to dribble a soccer ball. I just sometimes wonder if we've sent a bunch of strange mixed messages to kids about it. As you were saying, my wife and I, now we haven't gotten into the travel sports world yet, but I definitely will be the first person to say like, hey, all of a sudden you hear about kids that are playing in some like basketball league or whatever. And then you start to wonder like, are my kids behind all of a sudden, right? Like I don't want the door to be closed to my kid five years down the road to a sport that they don't even know they've, they've never even played it, right? But I don't want that opportunity taken away. So I better start now. And Right before COVID, we had our kids doing piano, swimming, basketball, karate, right? And we were driving all over the place after school every day. And it was like, what were we doing? I don't know why we were trying to do this. Our kids didn't mind doing it, but I also don't think our kids minded being home either, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And you are behind. 
I don't even know where they're at, but they're behind because we were playing coach pitch baseball and having fun with my older son. And then I think it was third grade. He went for a tryout and he was the only kid that showed up in shorts. All these other kids had personal coaching. They were moving the ball, making double plays. And my wife was there like, we're way behind. And around that time, my son was like, nah, it's a lot of standing in baseball. I'd like to run around more. You want to try soccer? Like, sure, let's do soccer. Then we left soccer because we wanted to do more basketball. Like he drove what he wanted to do. And right now he likes basketball and running and that's great. But I'd like to think that we're realizing that there's different things out there and you don't have to be excellent. But the heart of this that really, really parents don't get is the division one athlete that you're thinking about that you want your kid to be is either there or not in the genetics. Because you and I've been around athletics for a long time. When you go to a basketball game and there's supposed to be some D1 type athlete, is it ever hard to find that kid? No, they, they stand out. The, the great athletes always stand out from the pack. And it was football or basketball or running or whatever. It's always clear instantly to everybody there who's the one that is the D1 caliber athlete. Well, it's this kid because they're way better than everybody else. And perhaps it's because they have the mental dedication. Perhaps it's just because they're absolutely incredible and they're just driven they're just strong and fast and big and they understand things intuitively that's who it is there was an article in the detroit free press this fall about tyrone wheatley and he, the, the free press reporter was retiring and he was saying who is the best athlete you ever saw in all your years of covering michigan and he said tyrone wheatley whose parents were drug addicts and who barely raised his siblings and lived with his grandma he went out for seventh grade basketball and was dunking the ball then he went to track and he won the state championship by himself because he won four events. And they went to football and destroyed everybody. He was a monster and he ended up in the NFL. I don't think he had any private coaching on anything, but he was the athlete. And that's what many D1 people are. They are the athlete. And there are people that were far more talented than me. And I remember looking at them like, oh, wow, that's, that's a god right there. And that's what the article talks about. In one interview, the mom says, I see these guys at D1 lacrosse and they're like gods. Like, yes, they are like gods. When you walk around, they are bigger, faster, stronger, more ripped, have incredible abilities that was hard for me to comprehend. And I'm a two-time All-American, a Big Ten champion the mile. And I had a teammate that I was just in awe of. I had trouble talking to him from day to day because he was just so talented and so fast. But that's who these people are. If your kid's not that, it doesn't matter. Have fun. Enjoy playing sports. And that's the heart of this whole thing. Well, and that's the pressure part of, I kept thinking about, again, this sort of unspoken arms race that people are having about getting their kid involved in higher level sports. And I do understand the idea of you try the rec league and then all of a sudden you kind of realize like, okay, this is a level. My kid seems to like this sport. I'd like to take it up another notch. And it's really hard to find sort of an intermediate level where the challenge comes up a little bit and the competition comes there. Usually you have to then start to kind of jump into this travel world. And I get where it becomes a very slippery slope where you almost don't even know how you got into this vortex of we're now traveling every weekend and staying in hotels in Ohio and having to leave work early and, and get back late on a Sunday night. Like I could see where there's a slow creep where all of a sudden it didn't feel like you were going down this road or the number of friends that I have who are parents that are like, oh, we're going to try a little tra little softball league here. There's just one kind of tournament and it's only an hour away. We're just doing one. 
And I, we already start joking about how, you know, five years from now, they're going to end up in Tennessee all summer long at these like mega tournaments or something like that. But it just kind of made me wonder about, do you think the travel sports thing like shows a lack of creativity on our parts as parents and as a society, like our lack of ability to imagine anything else for our kids. I was just sort of thinking, you know, I had a, I have a daughter and when she was like three or four, she followed me into basketball practice one day and a parent said, oh, is this a future college basketball star? And I came back with her. I said, well, I was hoping for robotics or computer programming. <laughs> and they looked at me so weird, but you know, like, it's not like we ever sit around and talk about like, you know, I'm going to start taking my eight-year-old to computer programming classes right now. I'm going to make them live at robotics camp. I think this weekend we're going to sit down with our 10-year-old and we're going to talk about how Mark Zuckerberg was able to retain 51% of his Facebook company so that he now rules the world and is a billionaire. We don't have those conversations. Nobody seems to want to have travel IPO camp, right? Where we're going to get kids to think bigger about actually more practical opportunities for them in the future. Why do you think that is? I think you're wrong. And here's why I think it is that I went in, my kids were in kindergarten and first in second grade. And we have a math club at the elementary school where my boys went. And I volunteered to go to the math club to be a coach. When I went to the math club, I found a whole lot of people that were single-mindedly driven in the pursuit of excellence in math. And my kids really would have rather been out in the playground, but we believed in this and that math was the way, and it's not about sports. It's about expanding your mind and thinking critically. And as we went through math club, the boys complained and so much. So after about six months, we quit, but there is a group of people there and they are focused. And somehow I was put in charge of a team and I walked, I looked around and it was a predominantly a group of Asian people, mostly moms who I'm sure have PhDs in physics and mathematics and who know things far more than me, but because I'm a teacher and whatever, I was put in charge. And I remember thinking like, you are all way smarter than me, but there is this single-minded pursuit group. And last year we did robotics for the same reason with my younger son, who again was not thrilled. He'd rather be at home playing around in the yard, but we went and we focused on it. And ultimately it was interesting and we took something away from it. But when we went to the robotics competitions, that is a single-minded pursuit group right there. Not that different from the athletics group, but I think a little bit more admirable in that it's focused on an intellectual pursuit for which anybody has an access point. It's not about size. It's not about speed. And it's not really about parents' income either. No, and, and that's a good point. I guess you're right. Maybe there is this world out there. I, I guess maybe it just doesn't feel like it's as celebrated or maybe it's not as uncovered as the world of youth sports, whereas I feel like the majority of my students in my class are, are doing some sort of a sport. I guess there are a few kids that maybe are pursuing like an intellectual topic like, like robotics or math camp and stuff like that. But you bring up a good point about your son is that you seems like you tried to give them exposure to a lot of things, sports, math, robotics. That does kind of come up in a book by David Epstein. He wrote a book called Range where he sort of talks about the idea that the 10,000 hour rule has maybe been sort of demyth. All of this research that he goes out and he starts out his book with this idea of Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer. Tiger Woods was the epitome of age three. His dad only starts doing golf with him. And the idea of obviously Tiger Woods becomes very incredible. A lot of people feel like that's how you become great is you just start something really early and do it. 
However, the Roger Federer story is really interesting. His mom was a tennis coach who refused to coach him. He played lots of different sports. His parents never pushed him into anything. And only around like 12 to 14 did he start to show some aptitude at tennis that he starts to get really serious about it. And then he becomes Roger Federer, arguably the greatest tennis player ever. And the idea is like, well, here's two different routes that people took to become the greatest at their profession. All of the research in this book by Epstein just shows that actually hyper-focusing, hyper-specialization on something at an early age is bad. Having a range of opportunities, a range of skills actually helps develop people in a much better way. And I thought it was fascinating. What did you think about these ideas? The article is really interesting. It reminded me of things I've read about Steph Curry, who played a lot of different sports growing up and only focused on basketball later. Also was a late blooming kid to begin with. His story is an, an, uh, an unpredictable one. I don't think he goes to Davison if his dad wasn't a former NBA player. And maybe he just ends up being the really good guy on your baseball league. Also, it reminded me of the Andre Agassi biography, which I thought was fascinating. Absolutely loved that book. Agassi's dad is just on him hours and hours a day and makes him hate tennis, but he excels, becomes the number one world-ranked player, wins all these majors. And ultimately, when he gets settles down with his second wife and he has kids, it's with Steffi Graf, who also had a domineering mom or dad who was an incredible tennis player, but had a taskmaster for a parent. And you know what they did with their kids? Stayed as far away from tennis as possible, right? Yeah, they told them not to play tennis because yeah. it, it was just miserable. They, I'm sure they could have, they had the genetics clearly and they know how to do this, but they had no desire to push them through all that stuff. And that's what it really made me think of. Well, and I read that Agassi biography and he does just the whole time talk about like, how he hates and loves the sport all at once and how just his complicated feelings of it, of being pressured and pushed to do it all the time. And it kind of goes back to the idea of this range book of Epstein almost is like, look, if you want your kid to be great at something, they need a variety of experiences. He talks about the idea of pattern recognition in the brain and that the person who has the most diverse amounts of experiences and has done lots of different things, when they're all of a sudden thrown into an unfamiliar situation, all of the patterns of their previous experiences start to come up. It's, the, it's those patterns that they then start to fit into other models that they've made. And I think about some kids that have played basketball for me, they also play hockey. And I'm always amazed at what great passers some of them are. And I really, it's almost like they see the floor like a hockey player in terms of, you know, passing the puck to where the next guy is going to be. It's like, where did they, they see that? But you can almost see the sports overlapping. And I think we miss that conversation a lot. I think we want to be in this sole pursuit of excellence that we forget that kids should be out there trying lots of things. It goes back to what you said about pickup soccer. The best soccer players come from usually poor areas where kids were playing in very narrow streets. They may have did not even had a soccer ball and yet they were just playing all day long and developing the footwork, but also the skills of how do you interact in tight spaces? How do you see things that other people don't see? And I think we forget that so much of being great is being creative, doing what other people don't. Coaching usually tends to put you in a box and we don't seem to promote the idea of creativity. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the pursuit of this is the one way to do this thing is to destroy creativity. I have a fraught relationship with this because I've said on a previous podcast, I want there to be one right way. There's one way to throw a discus, one way to high jump. But yet 
Dick Falsbury really changed that. There was one way, then he changed everything and was very successful in doing so. Now, as a parent, I try, we try our best to do many different things, to do biking, running, hiking. We're doing a pull-up challenge currently. We are doing all sorts of different things to try and get our kids that place. But it's not because I want them to be an absolutely incredible athlete. That'll either happen or it won't based on them finding whatever sport they want to do and being dedicated and focused on it. And if the genetics are there already, I just want them to try different things and be happy. I never got to play basketball growing up. We played soccer because I think my dad, when my dad coached, I got to play for free. And then I ended up running and it was not something I got to try a lot of different things. So I'm happy that our kids have, whether it's for the pursuit of being great in the long run, like Federer, or it's just the pursuit of trying different things and having some fun. It's interesting you mentioned that soccer. I was thinking soccer seems like the sport in America that has some wealth tied to it in order to play and and be a part of it. But it also seems like the most top-down organized sport in our country for all the way from like the Olympic World Cup development team all the way down to your local rec team and I also just think about how soccer is still a sport that America can't get out of its own way we still are not very good internationally we've really not developed that many international high-class players and it makes me wonder if there's too much coaching, right? We talked about in the case of uh, the case against education book, how maybe the problem in school is that we have too much math that we're making kids do and how it gets in the way of kids being able to pursue their own interests. Do you think that's what we've done to soccer in our nation is we just have way too much coaching and we've kind of like killed kids ability to be creative and to develop into greatness. Kids don't play it maybe a lot on their own. Any thoughts on that? When my son's friends come over, they usually end up playing football next door. There's a big field there. They end up playing football because that's what they like. Now, my sons have played flag football, but they'll never play real football because of my brain injury concerns. But that's the sport to go to because that's what's popular in the culture. In these other countries, soccer is the sport and it is their culture. And that's what they do. My older son has three good friends who are soccer players and they play in fairly elite travels teams and they come over and they actually play soccer in the field next door. And then they came back and they're playing basketball and my God, they're bad. Not to say that they need to be great, but it's just they're focused on soccer, which is, does have some positive crossover. But I think it's just because the culture doesn't glorify soccer. Now in football, you either have a lot of coaching or no coaching. And it seems like the no coaching football is a lot of fun for kids. And I'm not sure the actual coaching is. It seems like there's a lot of yelling and uh, intensity there. Well, it's interesting because as somebody who has to run basketball tryouts and you mentioned no coaching versus coaching is it's really obvious to tell which kids have had parents that have been able to send them to a couple of basketball camps. I'm not saying that these kids are playing travel, but just kids that know how to do a basic layup or, or know what a three person weave is and stuff like that. And you kind of then start to feel bad for kids that have never had the opportunity to go and have any sort of coaching or, or formal experience. And so here I am now talking about, look, the best is when kids are just off on their own and playing with other kids and figuring stuff out. But there is a level, there is a balance where coaching does matter. I, you know, you talk to, especially to football coaches where they talk about just technique in terms of blocking or tackling, and you can tell certain programs are teaching it better than others. And I guess there is a balance. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I'd say so. But I think football is the sport you can come latest to. If you're fast, big, strong, athletic, they're going to find a spot for you. It might not be a quarterback where there's a lot of mental reads and things that have to be built up 
and reminds me of the New Yorker article years ago about the guy that makes quarterbacks in California. That you can guarantee your kid a D1 scholarship if you give him 10 years and six, at least six feet in height. But yeah, football, anybody seems to be able to jump in and join. I guess this kind of brings me then to sort of my final question for you, which is more about, again, going back to the youth sports culture and the parent behavior around it, the obsession with the amount of money and time that the that, that parents invest in all of this. Why? I keep wondering about sports as the last bastion of black and white in our society. If you think about like economics, politics, our social behavior as a society, all of it is gray. All of it is never ending. It's all a slog where no matter how you feel about any of these topics, you're never going to have a right or a wrong. We're going to have an election here in two weeks. We're still going to have a winner, but then still half of the country is going to believe that it's not the right winner, right? We're just going to move on to the next election. It never ends. Sports seems to be the one thing where there's a right and there's a wrong. There's a win or a loss. There's something definitive about it. Do you think in a world where people can't find a grasp towards maybe a lot of things, that's why they push their kids towards sports? Because it's the one thing that makes sense. It's the one thing where they can tell if their kid's getting better or worse at. Yeah, and I think it's the thing that they can control. Even though they could probably dump all that money into math tutoring and it would probably be better, they feel like they can control sports. It's also interesting to f- and fun to watch. And then the third factor has to be the vanity. The vanity of feeling good watching your kid dominate and how that makes you feel and how it makes you feel when other parents are saying, wow, your kid is absolutely incredible. And so it's, I think, all those factors together. It's interesting about sports too, and I wonder if this is also part of the appeal, is you and I are both teachers and you and I have both coached. And in practice, I am allowed to absolutely lose it, scream, yell, stomp, threaten, I'm allowed to like physically punish kids through making them run sets of lines and do hard, physically demanding things. And a lot of people would say, wow, what a motivator, what a teacher. He holds them accountable. If they so much as move six inches in the wrong direction, he's going to blow the whistle and make everybody do some push-ups to remind them that they're not doing it right. But yet, if you and I behaved like that in a classroom, we all of a sudden are a bully. We're a tyrant. We're somebody who's not with it with today's youth, right? We don't get it anymore. Why is that, that the line is so clear between being a great coach, but you're not allowed to use a lot of those things in the classroom and considered to be a great teacher? I'm not sure. I think it goes back to these notions of by all means, like that's what the whole article is really about. I'm going to get my kid to be great by all means. And if you can motivate them by all means to be better in this or that, then we'll allow that to happen. But why can't you do that in economics, right? If a kid just isn't getting their supply and demand graph written, why can't you get face-to-face with them and raise your voice? A lot of people would call you a bully. Again, you'd probably get talked to by your administrator for not being a receptive teacher who's supportive and accommodative, yet you're trying to make that kid great, right? I don't think I have any of my kids that are going to economics class after school. I don't think any of them have an economics private tutor. They aren't certainly flying to economics competitions all over. I think it's a lower priority. I don't think it matters as much. It's interesting, though, because society says the kid needs to learn economics. Society's never said the kid needs to learn basketball. (laughs) That's true. People don't pay to watch economics either. 
the great Tom Romito, my mentor and, and a good colleague of yours, you know, he once asked me 16 years ago, he said, why is it that the sport coach will go and watch the film of the game over and over and over looking for any inefficiencies, any strategies that they can take anywhere where they can be better or things they need to coach. But that same coach who might be a teacher doesn't watch game film of the day's class or where kids were not paying attention or where they could have drawn their um, X, Y axes a little more clear for the kids to read it when they're drawing their supply and demand graphs. We sort of leave that behind, but yet we hyper-focus on the sport. Any thoughts about why the focus seems to be more again on sports and not on behaviors that again, society is deemed. These are standards. We got to teach kids. By the way, I have videotape lessons many times and you do learn a whole lot about that, about yourself when you watch a videotape lesson. I think it's that they're judged on the sports. I mean, nobody's going to come into your classroom and judge you as to how good your performance was today in the classroom. We get observed maybe once, twice a year by our administrators in a normal year, certainly not in a COVID year. You're judged every single moment when you're coaching, especially in a basketball court where people actually understand basketball to a certain degree and definitely think they know basketball and are going to tell you what you did right or wrong because they've watched some basketball and they know you are being judged on your performance there. And there's a pressure. There's also a desire to perform and to beat other teams. It taps into competition, being judged. It taps into everything. You're not competing to be the best economics teacher. Nobody cares at any level. You're not being judged and by the parents on whether or not you're doing a fantastic job. They just want you to do an okay job, but nobody wants a coach that just does an okay job. And I think that's a great point. I mean, clearly that's where society's priorities are. And I guess that's just something that I think a lot about is why is it that sports seem to be the area where lots of energy is spent and yet we don't seem to spend that much energy or as much energy in the academic arena. We seem to think it's okay if we've got students who fail sometimes. We seem to think it's okay if everybody just kind of gets a B or a C, but nobody thinks like that. No, no coach or anybody watching sports goes, eh, I guess we're just an okay team, right? We're always working for that pursuit of excellence. And yet that doesn't seem to translate from a society level to our, our schools and our classes, I guess. Well, to come back to the Atlantic article, there was tremendous pressure on all those kids to be straight A students as well. And they had the tutors and whatnot to get them there in that way. I mean, the kind of money that those parents had, they're throwing at everything to increase their resume in every way. Sports were just one aspect of that. But I do agree with you. In a general society, our student body, our community is far more concerned about who is a better football player than who has a better SAT score. Although the SAT score is more likely to get into a good school and people do know who has the best SAT score and they are aware of them, but not in the same way that they're aware of who's the best football player or basketball player. That's a good point. It's interesting. And obviously your kids are are moving towards the higher middle school, lower high school level. And uh, my kids are kind of just now starting to get this area where we're having to ask ourselves, uh, are we going to do this travel sport or not? I can guarantee you one thing. We won't be doing squash, rowing or water polo and uh, trying to get into the Ivies that way. I think we're going to try to go the billionaire route and maybe just try to buy a building or something like that. Yeah, you better get that billions. Actually, get your kids in swimming because that's a sport that only American, Australia, and Japan care about. And there is uh, not that many people do it because you have to be fairly wealthy and it's not that many pools around. So that's a place where you can dominate. And I believe you took swimming in college twice. So you have some background. 
I used a lot of kickboard, that's for sure, uh, to get to get through my my swimming experience. Um, I did want to ask you that I know you love Gladwell, and uh, he wrote that book, Outliers: The Ten Thousand Hour Rule, where that kind of gives you an idea of if you've mastered something. He also brought up the whole idea of birthdays and how kids that had birthdays that were like later in the year were more physically mature when they finally were playing their sports. And that was one of the reasons why they were better. There is this sort of culture out there where some people now want to hold their kid back to make sure that they are the most physically mature. And obviously then they want to put in the 10,000 hours. Do you think Gladwell's actually been worse for society for bringing up this sort of stuff? Ooh, great question. That is a great question. I'd love to ask Gladwell, but I'd like to ask Gladwell a bunch of questions. Yeah, I wonder if he has, if people are single-mindedly focused on that. I don't think that's necessarily a birthday thing. That was more about birth month and hockey. Can all good hockey players are born in January, February, March, because they are more mature and older because it's done by birth year, as is soccer. I wouldn't be surprised that it's created a whole lot of births in early uh, early months of the year in those sports that are run that way, like soccer and football or soccer and uh, hockey huh is he for the worse i don't know maybe maybe i also just wonder too if if okay so if we've exposed that inefficiency and now everybody's holding their kid back in ten thousand hours like what's the next inefficiency then right to give your kid an edge oh i know what it is crisper we got to get our kids through before crisper really takes hold CRISPR is gene editing software for heritable genes. You could change your own genes and train your kids' genes. It's not allowed on humans right now, although the Chinese are doing it, but the next generation will be genetically modified. You can custom order your kid to have uh, more, better muscle tone or more height. And we're going to have this next generation of genetically formatted and created athletes. So that's coming. That's 20 years down the road. Thank goodness our kids are going to go through before these CRISPR mutants come through. I really like that prediction because you think about these families with money, they, I could see them totally pre-planning the birth of their kid to go and give them certain physical attributes. So maybe it will be our grandchildren that will be able to have this. This is why we need our billions so that we can fund our CRISPR grandchildren. Yes. And then, well, that would be truly awful because now the mutants of sports, the people that have the incredible ability and speed and whatnot are often from, they're from all levels of society, rich and poor all the way down. But if it's all CRISPR determining who's going to be the tremendously talented, it'll be even more concentrated in the rich. That's true. Well, that will be something else to, uh, to watch and think about as, as the future comes. But I do like that. I think that's got to be the next phase. There's going to be an article about this at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, I did ask my sister-in-law is uh, is a Harvard PhD in genetics, and I asked her about it, and she said, it's not that simple, Don. You can't just order at a better VO2 max or increased muscle density. You can order up like one little thing, like this uh, cell will be more resistant to cancer, or this cell will respond to this one input this one way. Those things that I want are much more demanding. So I was a little reassuring that we got some time before the Chinese create their mutants that come up and uh, destroy us. Now we can just look for the mutants that we see day to day in the NBA or the NFL. Hey, that's CRISPR 1.0. As we know, technology just compounds. I could see it in 10, 15 years, though. By the way, I heard I talked to my brother about this article. And like I said, his uh, his wife went to the Ivies. He said the Yale squash facility is absolutely incredible. It's like a palace. So we got to make that pilgrimage sometime to get to the Yale squash facility. Maybe we can do a podcast from there. They did talk about in the article that one of the parents did just buy a program so his son could play on a team, I think. Right. And oh, yeah. It was just like, oh, okay, well, this cow doesn't have a program. 
here, let's just buy a team. And now my kid's on a team, right? So that would also be, I guess, another inefficiency is just use your money to just fund a program. Well, and then there was the concern in the article about these sports are being, they are considered country club sports. And because they're all white and wealthy, that they're likely to be cut. So they sponsored a $100 million program for inner city squash to try and create diversity in the squash world by making these inner city squash programs, which is another just kind of bizarre transfer of wealth to self-serve. It's just crazy. This whole thing is just wild. This article, I will post a link, of course, in our show notes. I cannot recommend enough that people go and read it. Don, it has been a pleasure talking with you about this, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Good times. Take care.